Welcome back to Tip of the Spear with your Missoula County Commissioners. I'm Juanita Vero, and I'm here with Josh Slotnick and Dave Strohmeyer. And today we're also joined by our Office of Emergency Management Director, Adrian Beck. Um, so we've kind of had a, a meager winter, but it is spring and generally in the spring, I mean, what meager amounts of snow we do have <laughs> is melting. That means flooding season is upon us. So uh, we're here to talk about flooding. Flooding, yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when we start to see those signs of spring um, that kind of get us hopeful for the transition of seasons and things like that, it's a good opportunity to think about how much snow is up in the mountains and, and how quickly that's going to come off and what potential impacts that might have on our rivers and in our floodplain. And so, as you mentioned, uh, this last winter was not too remarkable. Um, we're sitting okay for going into this spring, uh, but Mother Nature is always the variable. We can have flood situations where uh, we have unremarkable snowpack, but we get a significant rainfall over multiple days that can push us into flood season. And so while the snowpack is a good indicator of what we should be preparing for, uh, we always kind of have to keep our eye on the, the other variables. Thanks. Yeah, this has been one of the coldest, driest springs that I can remember, which makes me feel like we should be getting some rain and it might come all at once. And who knows, we could be in flood trouble yet. Yeah, absolutely. So Adrian, you have joined us in the past and it was really fun when you came last time. But for folks who missed that, would you mind describing how you found yourself in this position of uh, running our Office of Emergency Management? It's a, it's a pretty intense job. How did you find yourself in this role? Pure luck. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, how far back do you want to go, right? I, I uh, go back. Go like, back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, uh, you know, grew up in Helena, Montana. I uh, came to the University of Montana to go to, to, go to college. Uh, really had a, an eye and, and a thought process of thinking I wanted to go into law enforcement. And so I uh, was at the University of Montana and saw this flyer in the dorm. I lived in Aber Hall that was for a, uh, what they called a sleeper program with the Frenchtown Rural Fire District. It was uh, an opportunity to become trained as a firefighter and as an EMT while simultaneously living in one of their fire stations and, and getting money for tuition reimbursement to go to college. The schedule worked out really well as far as you covered nights and weekends to enable you to go to school during the day. And so I moved out of the dorms the next year, moved into a fire station, spent two years in their residency program, um, spent my summers fighting wildland fire, and uh, continuing to pursue certifications and, and accreditations as a, an emergency medical technician and a structural firefighter. Upon graduating from college, had the opportunity to take a uh, full-time position with the fire department as their volunteer coordinator. Uh, the department was a combination department with paid staff and mostly volunteers at the time. And just over the years, kind of progressed to different positions within the paid staff of the fire department. And after about 14 years of being in the fire service, uh, really was looking to maybe do something different. And I had the opportunity to come to Missoula County as the Deputy Disaster and Emergency Services Coordinator. It was a new position that had just been created. What even attracted you, sorry, to... <laughs> You know, I think it was... Disaster emergency coordination. That sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a little bit of just the unknown, right? Of uh, wanting to try something different. But also, you know, not being kind of in that response mode all the time. Not, um, you know, having the opportunity to, to have a 9 to 5, Monday through Friday type 
job um, was somewhat attractive to me. Little did I know that <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't what it was going to be. But um, and so yeah, I was able to come work for the county and uh, under the. Chris Lounsbury, and uh, he was just a great mentor and, and taught me all kinds of things about all hazards and all disasters, not so much just in the fire realm. And, and I think that that's really what I enjoyed the most was being able to come out of that kind of single lens and, and being able to look at things more holistically and, and how they impact the community outside of just kind of that routine 911 call. Chris moved on to new and better promotions within the county which then uh, gave me the opportunity to step into the director role. Well, Adrian, one of the roles that you play in your, your current position is helping manage or address or respond to flood emergencies and disasters, and, and you're no stranger to this. So for those of us who are uh, listening and either new to the community or maybe have been here for a while, could, could you just maybe recap for us a little what might be some notable flood events that you've experienced or been through and are there any lessons to be learned from those circumstances? Well, sure. I mean, as far as lessons to be learned, I think that anytime we experience something that rises to the level of a disaster, um, it, we, we always have an opportunity to say what happened, what do we do well, what do we, what do we need to improve and prepare for in the future. The first big flood that we had was the second biggest flood we've ever experienced <laughs> in, in Missoula County. So in 2018, uh, we had uh, quite a bit of snowpack. Uh, we had some spring moisture and rain, and we just started to see the river continue to rise and to continue to rise. And, and it was somewhat challenging to respond to that uh, because... You know, when there's a fire, we call the fire department. When there's a vehicle accident or something involving law enforcement, we, we know who to call for those types of things. But th there's no agency that really responds to flooding. And furthermore, there's very little that you can do to hold back a wall of water. Wait, when you say respond to flooding, when during flooding is the responding happening? Yeah. When does it become an emergency? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so typically, when, when we classify something as an emergency relative to flooding, it's, it's when the river is doing something that we don't want it to do by way of impacting infrastructure or properties that, we, that otherwise we wouldn't want water flowing over. Um, so the easy way to think about is that is when the river leaves its banks. And sometimes that has little consequence. Uh, it just recharges the floodplain. Other times it will take out a bridge or a road, uh, the roadway, or in worst case scenarios, like we experienced in 2018, it moves houses. We, we lost, I think, three um, mobile homes into the Clark Fork River during the 2018 flooding event. They were not occupied <laughs> when they went into the water, but, but they were someone's home, and, and that has high consequence. And I think I interrupted you. You were, you were continuing on about kind of the, the history of flooding uh, and the, the response here right. with the county. So in 2018 is when, when we saw that kind of historic flooding for our community. And one of the things that I think we've seen since, and, and this is obvious, I think, to everyone who's spent any time around a river, is that they're always changing. And the floodplain is always changing, the river's always changing. But what we saw in 2018 
is is the river do things that we've not seen it do in the past? And so it became hard to predict kind of what it was going to do in the immediate future. But then also as we've gone into flood years since 2018, the river continues to do things that it has not done in the past. There's lots of theories about what's going on with the river. The Water Quality District has, has undergone some uh, channel migration mapping. And we've worked with the Army Corps of Engineers to, to try to understand our levee infrastructure and making sure that that's adequate. But what we're seeing is that every year we're seeing flooding at a lower and lower stage. And so those negative impacts, those negative consequences of the river leaving its bank are becoming more predominant at with less water in the river. What's going on there? Why, why is that? In the city limits of Missoula, you have the, the river is, is levied on both sides. And so as it's going through town, it's going at a pretty fast rate. The bed load or the, the, the gravel and the sand and everything else is, is in the river. But as it starts to slow down, as it comes out of that levee system, it all falls down. And so what, we're, what we think we're seeing is that the, the base elevation of the river is coming up. Oh. Uh. And so the water then comes up at a shallower river gauge height mm. or flow. How do you guys measure yeah, river and, and weather and, and predict and, or know what's, what's coming? So we work very closely with the National Weather Service and the U.S. Geological Survey. The USGS has the river gauges that we use as predictors of where we're going to start seeing some of those negative impacts and where we're going to start seeing some of that consequence of, of flooding. And we've been able to calibrate, if you will, um, based off of certain river gauges where we know when we hit a certain river gauge height or a flow that we know what the downstream effects are based on that gauge height. And so we've worked really closely with the National Weather Service here in Missoula and their hydrologists and their predictive forecast folks to really kind of hone that in so that when we see things starting to occur, uh, we kind of know what to expect. And I think that that probably is the best lesson learned from the 2018 flooding is how do we get better predictive services? How do we better anticipate what those impacts are going to be? Again, after 2018, kind of feeling very vulnerable and not knowing what to expect next, not knowing how to communicate to the public what they should prepare for and what they should expect. We initiated a couple different things. One was we worked with the Army Corps of Engineers to do a flood inundation study, which, similar to reading the gauge heights on some of our, our known gauges, it's different from floodplain mapping. I want to be clear about that. Uh, it's not a regulatory tool. It's it's a predictive tool for our office to be able to use to help better communicate with the public about what they should expect. And so we can run some what I would call supposals and say, well, if if we see the river gauge go to this height, how much water should we expect in some of these neighborhoods? And that then allows us to help the community and help the public better prepare for, for that based on what we think we're going to see, but also based on what we're actually seeing. Well, speaking of predictions, and, and if we have time later on, you can talk about the crystal ball and tarot cards that are on the table. <laughs> in front of here, but uh, what, What's your best guess or, or uh, your colleague's best guess as far as what we might be looking at this spring? And how are you, maybe as we speak, preparing for flood season. Yeah, that's good. You know, the National Weather Service has, if you've ever tried to navigate their website, it, it's 
it's immense and amazing the amount of information and data and detail that they have in there. But that is one of the things that we start to look at about this time of year is we start looking at those river gauges and they also have some features on there where you can kind of, they're models and, and you know the common saying about models is every model's wrong, right? But it does give you a sense of what we should be, the crystal ball that we should be looking into based on the conditions that we have on the ground right now, based on the forecast that is in the future, and then uh, as they play out, you can kind of see how those models will change. And right now, looking at the models, again, based on the river gauges that tell us the best intel for what we should expect in Missoula, we're looking at very unremarkable flooding. Now, that being said, we could end up with, uh, you know, a Pacific storm front that, that just hangs over Missoula for a week and dumps a lot of rain, and that completely changes the scenario. But right now, looking at snowpack, we're, we're not expecting a huge flood season. But, as I mentioned before, we are seeing what would have been normal kind of annualized flow still having those consequences of the river leaving its bank and having negative impacts on private property. So in, in this maybe somewhat unremarkable season that might be before us, uh, or if hypothetically it, it was looking like it, it could be the real deal this year, what would your office typically be doing to, right. to kind of prepare for that? Yeah, so even though it, we are expecting kind of an unremarkable flood season, we're still doing our kind of due diligence um, for the season and, and working to coordinate with all of our partner agencies. So next week, uh, we're kind of kicking those efforts off in earnest. Dave, you just attended our local emergency planning committee meeting where we talked a little bit about flooding. We got an update from the National Weather Service. Uh, that's something we do every spring. But next week, we'll be getting all of our agencies, all of our local government agencies together to kind of talk about their resources, make sure everybody knows who's who in the, uh, in the Rolodex as people change and positions change, make sure we know everybody's cell phone numbers, and then we go through our emergency operations plan to ensure that everybody understands what their role is by agency, but also what resources we have available to us in Missoula County and Missoula City. We also, uh, at the beginning of May, uh, traditionally have a meet and greet with the Army Corps of Engineers out of the Seattle District. Uh, they have folks that that come to Missoula uh, to do a visual inspection and, and walk our levee system just ahead of, ahead of flooding to make sure that there aren't any issues that need to be addressed. But this year they're going to come and do that as well as they're going to bring some equipment that we've not yet had deployed into Missoula County before. Um, it's an automated sandbagging machine which sounds really <laughs> cool, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, you know, you see these in communities where they have just really prolific flooding. Um, so we've not had one deployed into uh, Missoula. I don't know that there's ever been one deployed in Montana. But they're bringing that, and we'll do a bit of a dog and pony show to, to see how that thing works. As well, they're bringing some of their HESCOs, which, again, these are just devices that can be used for flood control in a flood fight situation. What's, yeah. a, what's a HESCO? We're going to find out on it's May 4th. It's a device that can be used <laughs> in a flood scenario. <laughs> okay. Does it, does okay. What does it do? <laughs> yeah, they, they're used to divert water, much like a sandbag would be, but okay, you, know, okay. you need heavy equipment to move them around. Oh. And, and they typically are used to protect public infrastructure, bridges, roads, those kinds of things. So when is this happening? May 4th oh, uh, okay. out of Fort Missoula. Yeah. I'll send you yeah, the yeah, we should go take a look. So, Adrian, we've talked a little bit in this discussion about 2018. I re remember it well. The water on Tower Road almost made it to 3rd Street. Yes. So, looking back at that year, 
What are some kind of lessons learned and are there things that we've explored in terms of flood mitigation to make sure those that neighborhood isn't hit so hard when there is a big flood? Yeah. You know, I, 2018 was impactful for our office, obviously, uh, and I think it, it highlighted some of the mitigation strategies that we could be more proactive around flooding. And so following 2018, which seems like it was just yesterday, but it, it was quite a long time ago <laughs> at this point, we engaged in conversations with the Federal Emergency Management Agency as well as the Army Corps of Engineers to begin to look at, you know, how do, how do, we, how do we address this problem? How do we even analyze what is the best mitigating strategy to, to do? And that work continues. Um, it's painfully slow getting mitigation projects up and off the ground in a way that proves out to be cost beneficial is very challenging. What's an example of a project? So we, in 2018, we initiated a project to buy out one of the properties that was most severely impacted and had uh, extreme damage done to the to the property, but also to the structures that were on that property. In the course of the you know, the years that have followed, just about six months ago, we were notified that that project had been awarded for funding. Now, three flood seasons later, yeah, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> six um, months ago, and that was 2018. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. And, you know, the property inhabitable um, after 2018. And, and sometimes, you know, that, that period of time that it takes to get a project through kind of all the evaluation criteria to it prove out that it's cost beneficial to have a willing homeowner that wants to participate in the program can take a significant amount of time when you're really just dealing with one single property. And the, the problem is much bigger than that. Unfortunately, it, the amount of time that that application and that time to award that that took, uh, the, the property owner had lost interest in, and sold the property to somebody mm -hmm. else who did not want to participate in the, mm -hmm. in the buyout. Because these are voluntary programs. You know, we, we can't go in with eminent domain and say, well, we don't think that you can live here anymore and well, buy Three years out. is a long time. Like yeah. that's, that's tough. Well, one component of approving a subdivision or a property decision, I mean, this is what we're tasked with as commissioners, is making sure it's in compliance with our county floodplain regulations. So can you talk a bit about what that means and how regulations, I, I don't know if people are triggered by the word regulations, <laughs> but um, help prevent future development of neighborhoods along the river, like this orchard home situation or the, yeah. the trailers that ended up in the river? Yeah. I think y you know you're you're hitting on it right there, and that uh, and to be blunt, I mean our our office doesn't really deal with uh, the regulatory side of things, but certainly appreciates why they're there, um, because when you have development that occurs uh, either prior to those regulations coming in uh, into place or you know gets approved uh, in an area where it shouldn't, the consequences are that then we end up having to expend quite a bit of uh, local government resources uh, or federal resources to try to address and or then mitigate that, that hazard. And so when we think about flooding and we think about the regulatory floodplain as to why it's not a good idea to build there, the obvious is because of floods. I think what's important is that the regulations are such that it's saying it's not saying you can't build there if you build there you have to build to certain conditions so that you can your property your home can withstand said hazard and in this case flooding so someone who builds in the floodplain will need to meet certain elevation criteria to ensure that their home is is high enough for documented or predicted worst case scenario flooding yeah whether both in fire or 
flood scenarios. I've, I've heard it sometimes said that we, maybe particularly uh, in our libertarian bent, uh, Western United States and Montana like to privatize the benefits of doing whatever you want with your private property, but then essentially socialize the cost so that then when disaster strikes, we're all kind of picking up the slack and, and helping mitigate the disaster, even though choices were made and lack of regulation in the past was enacted to lead us to where we are today. I mentioned fire. So yeah. uh, flooding and flood season is going to be upon us soon, but we'll quickly slip by and we'll just move right on into fire season. Some folks out there might be wondering, is there any correlation between our, our predictive capacity and looking at the flooding season to judge how's fire season going to look? Uh, thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, I think that uh, there's some obvious relationships, right, in that when we have remarkable flooding years, it's typically because we have a remarkable snowpack, and, and then that translates to um, just more moisture in the ground that helps us stave off fire season a little bit longer. But we have years where we don't have flooding. We don't have years where we don't have wildfire. We skate by every now and then as far as not having what I would consider to be, you know, disastrous wildfires within Missoula County. But, but they're, if they're not occurring in Missoula County, they're occurring in our neighboring counties. And so it, and, and we're eating the smoke. So there certainly is a correlation in that when we have bigger floods, it's normally because we have much more water available to make that happen, um, which then kind of puts fire season off for a little while. But I don't know that... I don't know much more to say about no, that. <laughs> no, that's, that's fair enough. Is it too early to make any predictions about fire season, given we such a drought last fall and a really dry spring so far? We will have one. <laughs> <laughs> there will I'm be a fire season. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it, would be, it would be remarkable if we didn't have a fire season. But I think yeah. that, you know, when we look at the drought index um, and it's, it's creep, into, yeah. into the western part of the state um, we've been pretty fortunate but that it, you know that that drought creep is is real and it's continuing and it's getting worse and worse well and we've seen cases where it might uh, it might look like a wet spring wet early summer and folks are thinking well there's not going to be much by way of fire activity but uh, all of that wetness well, you're a farmer, Josh. Uh, makes that, that moisture grow. makes things grow, yeah. and uh, then and you then get a flash, flash drought, and <laughs> yeah. uh, and yeah. you get fires. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just looking out the window right now, jumbo should be greener than that right now. Right. Yeah. It's almost May. It should be greener than that. Right. But should be is pretty relative. It's just my limited experience for the past few decades, and <laughs> in terms of geology, that's not a lot of time. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, in my time. In, in emergency management, you know, we've, we've had fire seasons that start later, we've had fire seasons that start earlier, but back to my prediction, we've always had a fire season. Yeah. Some of them are not as remarkable as others, you know, sure. and, but summer in Montana. Yeah. So I get tasked with asking what is often my favorite question here. So in the recent past, what have you come across that you found was really interesting, aside from anything to do with emergencies? I'm thinking books, magazine articles, podcasts, prestige TV, anything, <laughs> any, any kind of cool idea or story that you ran into that you thought was uh, worthy of worthy of talking about? Oh, well, you know. Hmm. We're in the golden age of culture. Noteworthy <laughs> public meetings by the Board of County. No yes. my God. Yeah. You know what? What I found uh, recently, and and maybe it was just kind of the, the the doldrums of the the last two years of the pandemic, but 
I, I found a lot of fun in laughing at myself with my six-year-old. Oh, and, that's beautiful. And so, you know, she's not a voracious reader yet, and so when you ask me what books I'm reading, I'm, I could give you very a list Very Hungry Caterpillar. She's way beyond that. Very Hungry Caterpillar. But she's a voracious listener, and um, I think that what's been fun for me is is to laugh at myself Mm -hmm. as far as you know really getting into the characters and really like you know like coming up with funny accents and (laughs) things like that (laughs) and um yeah it's something that i don't do outside my house can't believe i'm talking about it on a podcast (laughs) 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 that's good stuff but you know it it really has been kind of recharging right i mean just that that nightly routine of just being goofy what are you guys reading right now well, I, she she gets to choose, and she gets to choose four books every night. Oh. Um, four? Yeah. What time's bedtime? <laughs> <laughs> There's like an hour of reading. Yeah. That sounds really fun. Yeah. Well, it's like about 45 minutes, right? Yeah. And okay. And uh, yeah, it's it's kind of the wind down for the day. But she has just a ton of books. Okay. Well, what's her favorite? Because I wanna I wanna go read it in my. Okay. You know, imagination of Adrian Beck voice. <laughs> the uh, the the one that we just checked out from the Missoula public library uh is the bear has sniffles the bear has sniffles ah. yes this is covid A good covid era no, I, don't <laughs> COVID yeah. I don't know what her yeah she got into the sickness theme for <laughs> <laughs> i can't imagine why yeah <laughs> it was all these different characters but yeah no she she just really gets into into the books and so it's it's a lot of fun did you guys ever do Junie b jones books you know those Oh my god! Yeah, because like you're the same age as my kids. <laughs> oh my gosh, it just would make me laugh so hard reading those things. They're so funny. I'm gonna have to check them out. Yes, yeah, <laughs> whoever the woman who wrote those just is so funny. Yeah. What, what what are they called again? Junie B. Jones. She's yeah. the main character. We read those. Oh we no, read, I've yeah, never read them. Oh okay. my goodness. What laugh. what age group? Oh, 57. I don't know. <laughs> I think you could read them out loud to a six-year-old. Yeah. All right. yeah. I mean, you might need a word explained here or there, but not much. Yeah, you know. yeah. No, I was I was shocked when uh, when we read Charlotte's Web that she was really grasping everything, and I'm in these voices and, you know, having all... And I look back, and we're at the end, of course, when it's very sad, and I look back, and she's just got tears streaming oh. down oh. her face, and yeah. I thought, oh, I probably should have... <laughs> anticipated that, that is such a great story <laughs> he's an incredible writer yeah wrote essays for grown-ups too it also is the same white and eb white of strunk and white the style guide oh. just an incredibly talented person in letters so also had one of my favorite uh, farming quotes from eb white yeah yeah which, which is, is which is uh, yeah uh, Farming is 10% agriculture and 90% fixing what's got busted. Ah. Yes. <laughs> As so well good. you know this past we couple just, of days. We were yeah. just talking about this. Yes. Now, E.B. White's quite an amazing human. Oh, that's good. That's, that's good. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, thanks a ton, Adrian. Yeah, yeah you bet. Thanks so much. Yeah, our community is in really good hands with you. Oh, well, thank you so much for saying that. But I have a fantastic team, and this is a remarkable community that really rallies, whether it's different you know, sectors of, of government or just the community at large, they they get stuff done. Yeah, that's well said. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. 